When you were 16 years old, what was your biggest fear? Not passing your driver's test? Not having a date for the school dance? Or maybe it was just getting through that damn chemistry class? Well, what if you were born in Syria and at 16 years old, your daily routine was war and your biggest fear was watching your friends die? And what if your reality was so dire that you would choose to end your own life rather than be captured and forced to experience a death most people can't comprehend at the hands of an evil most people can't even imagine? This is the life of the YPJ, the Women's Protection Units of Syria, and their fight against ISIS. On today's episode, I welcome back retired Air Force Combat Controller, Master Sergeant Eric Ballister, who served with a team of Delta Force operators as advisors to the YPJ. And they witnessed firsthand the dedication, sacrifice, and ferocity that is manifested when a group of young Syrian girls fight for their home. I'm your host, Susan, and this is the Ready Room Podcast. Okay. Ready? Yeah. Our game on. We're live. We're in Phoenix, Arizona. We're back here with Eric Ballister. Welcome back. So if you haven't listened to episode two, which was what we did a while back, Kazavax, Nine Lines, Getting Shot At, and other fun combat controller stuff, uh, it's legit. Eric's got some cool stories, and definitely listen to that. So, But we wanted to get him back on here to tell some other stories. And uh, so, dude, you did 20 years, retired Two years ago, a year and a half ago? Two years. Two years ago. Yeah, so we're in the civilian game now. Mm-hmm. Did Air Force CCT, so combat controlling. Ten combat deployments? Ten deployments. All right, so been overseas, logged some airline miles, and uh, done some pretty cool stuff. So before we get into the, like the mission of this one is a very specific deployment that you did a while back that was very unique to any military personnel at all. It's, it's very outside the box. Um, so we'll get into that, and but that deployment took you to Syria. So before we get into that, man, what are you working on now in the two years you've since you've been in the civilian world? I just finished school, so trying to diversify myself. <laughs> I, I just finished up my MBA. Uh, that's that's been the past eighteen months. Uh, kept me pretty active. I, I did the executive uh, model. Also purchased a franchise and an active member in shields and stripes so nonprofit space i think the nonprofit space is the is the space that i'm going to stay at okay. that's that's purposeful work for me and it's uh doing the lord's work yeah yeah shields and stripes taking care of veterans and first responders and treating them holistically with evidence-based care uh that we that we had in special operations so we're bringing that to uh veterans and first responders uh, it's the Lord's work. Good stuff, man. Yeah. So Shield and Stripes, plug for them. Great organization, doing really cool stuff. And a very unique, uh, I think, attack on, you know, for vets and first responders working through some stuff. They've got a, I think it's really cool. We got the the mental, the physical, all the different assets of, we'll call it health. Yeah, you guys a come, team. Yeah. yeah, bringing a team, a team together, f- uh, focused care for these individuals and everybody suffers you know everybody suffers in silence you know all every uh veteran and, and first responder they they solve problems they don't they don't they don't raise their hand and, and say that they they have a problem so right. okay cool man so civilian game you got a master's degree congratulations thank you very much uh, that's legit and then 
franchise, so you're tapping into side hustles. Yep. So school, side hustles, and do charity work. That's cool. Yeah. All right. So let's get back on on track here for a quick minute. So you did 10 deployments, and in 2016-17, quick historical recap, uh, ISIS was pretty much running the show. Yeah, in they Iraq, were all over the Iraq place. and Syria. Yeah. And you got to do a deployment that I, I've never heard of before or since, um, since talking to you about it. So tell us about that deployment um, specifically and the one we're talking about um, when you were in Syria, 1617. Yeah. So th- when I actually went to Syria, I had, I was already we were already dealing with ISIS. Like uh, ISIS was popping up all over the world. And I had a previous deployment before that where I was sitting in a desk and I was bombing the hell out of these guys from a desk. So I had already, I was already dealing with this problem before I even went out to Syria. This, this was our attempt to, to try and deal with them before we got boots on the ground. Uh, so it was, I think it was two years before my, yeah, it was in 2015. I was bombing them from, I was in Iraq, but I was bombing them in Syria. And, uh, that was my first, uh, that was my first deployment to Syria. It was uh, through video teleconferencing. So come 2017, now the, ISIS just kept on growing, kept on growing. Uh, they had fully taken over Syria. Uh, the, the state had failed and we were charged to actually go in there now and empower a 40,000 man army to deal with ISIS, get them out of there, get, get them out of the country, get the Syrians, uh, their country back. Um, so we were charged to go in there with 12 Americans and, empower the military empower a military force to go uh to go get them out of there give them give them an eviction notice so it was kind of cool seeing it from video teleconferencing Mm -hmm. you know i sat behind a desk for two months i did that job seven days a week and just watching the state fall and then actually getting a chance to go boots on the ground and see what I had been intimately looking at for, for two months. Uh, that was a really cool experience to, to be able to see it. Yeah. So you initially were, uh, so you were getting a digital feed from your air assets. Right. Um, and then employing from there. Right. Okay. Got it. All right. Good to go. Just to clarify how you employ from Iraq in Syria and all that. Right. It's via a lot of, uh, high speed stuff. But so when you got there, uh, so the situation, again, historically, so ISIS um, and the cultural variables that are associated and part of Syrian culture, Iraqi culture, and that entire regional culture is, is essentially, it's a six-year degrees worth of reading books to understand or even try to understand the amount of the millions of the dynamics that yeah. go on in that part of the world. So at this point, ISIS um, has control of, 95% of Iraq and Syria, except for small pockets of resistance. So you guys get sent boots on the ground. You said a team of 12. Yeah, we had, we had 12 Americans that, that went in there, uh, that were actually forward. Okay. So we, we were the, uh, 
we, we were the only force out there. And you're a supporting role. Correct. And who did you get attached to? So for that one, it was the Joint Special Operations Command. Um, I had an Army team out there uh, that I was attached to. So a Delta Force team of 12. Um, I was, yeah, I, I was the 12th guy. And we had I, we had a couple attachments also, but everybody uh, was from the Army. I was okay. the only Air Force dude out there. Nice. Yeah. Carrying, carrying the torch. Yeah. Carrying the torch. <laughs> what was unique about this, the unit that you were attached to? So what was unique about us was we're a direct action force. So we're, we're meant to go into places and, and do a special operations mission. But in this respect, we're going in as advisors. We were in an advising role. And for me, I was, I was a direct support. So I supported our, the partner force that, we were out there with, with air assets. So I, I'm providing them with resources. It, it wasn't, it wasn't, I would, I would say it's not a normal, wasn't a normal mission for us. Mm -hmm. Our, our normal mission is the pointy end of the spear. You go in and you go deal with this problem and then get out of there. But in this respect, we were going in to advise a partner force and hold ground. Got it. And you can't do that with twelve people. So it was, uh, it was, it was a challenge. So this one is out. This is outside the box. This is very outside. And what the box. part of Syria were you guys in? So I was in the northern part of Syria. So it, it was Hasaka was uh, the name of the town, and that was roughly, I want to say it was five hundred miles, five hundred miles uh, north of Raqqa. Okay. Got right. it. And that is, you're not far from the Turkish border. Correct. Right. So you, there's a, there's a lot of cultural movement and a gazillion years of history. And there's so many variables. Um, talk specifically about the unit you were attached to and why they were unique. So the unit that I was attached to was a reconnaissance element and they're unique for the fact that they were, they're the special, I, I guess you could call them the special team. And in respect to they can do a direct action role. They're all, they, that's where that's everybody is trained to do direct action, but then they had the additional duty of being the reconnaissance element. So clandestine work and, and being able to operate in the, in the gray area that we were operating in. It, it was just, it was in an area that we weren't technically supposed to be in nobody knew that we were that there's americans on the ground in in syria so they that team is very comfortable with with operating like that it, it's not an overt military presence so we blend in with the partner force we drove the same vehicles that they drove we dressed the same way we we wore their same uniforms this team is very very comfortable operating in this space okay and the space you were in what was the, uh, this is where it gets really outside the box. When they sent, you know, a dozen Americans capable uh, that can do some pretty gnarly stuff, and they sent you to a, essentially an infantry unit, right? Yeah. What was special about this infantry unit that you guys were there to support? So we had 40,000 military soldiers that we were supporting. That That's, that our commander 
our commander briefed us before we left to Syria. He said, your job is to enable a 40,000 man army. What I didn't know about the army was a, a majority of them were all women fighters. So the first military unit that I ever worked for, um, all comprised of women. So, uh, the, the fighting force, uh, is there, they were the YPJ, they're, um, Kurdish fighters, predominantly Kurdish, uh, women fighters. And I had no idea that I was going to attach to a all female Your CEO. <laughs> didn't, he didn't mention this was a, a female, we'll call it a female infantry battalion. Yes. Yes. He, he, he did not tell me that because each battle space had different commanders and the very first commander that I had owned battle space in the North and that battle space, the battle space was owned by the women, the women unit. Got it. The, okay, the YPJ owned the Northern part of Syria. So my commander was a 65 year old woman, uh, commander new gene, um, and day one, I, I was told, go, go brief the commander. Go, you, you have to go. Link you got a translator. I did. Yeah. Have a it, yeah. We have, a, we have a translator there. And I met her on the battlefield. We drove for seven hours. We had a convoy to drive, to go meet up with our partner force. You're meeting up with a 65 year old. She was a grandma. She was a grandma. She's a grandma. She's a grandma. She is in, she is the commander. Yes. Yes. Jeez, man. Okay, so hang on. I just want to, the acronym game here, lots of acronyms. So uh, there's, so YPJ, YPG, if anybody Googles this, uh, you'll, they'll come up in, in context together. But the YPG is the People's Protective Units Correct. of Syria. And, and that's the male, it's, that's the male unit. The male and, unit. And, and the YPJ is the Women's Protection Units. It's all female. Correct. You're with the YPJ. Correct. And you're going to meet. A sixty-five-year-old grandma yes. who's the she's the battalion commander. Yes. How does that go down? So she was. Uh, it was. It was. It was a very very funny uh, meeting because I I was first of all first of all I was blown away. I was trying to fi- figure this out that this is the person that I'm going to be fighting. Uh, she's going to command the battlefield and. I had never worked with a, a, a female in war at all. I, I think I had like one or two deployments where we had a woman um, assisting us with like searching, searching detainees or, or something. I've never had women on the battlefield before. So it took me, I, I had to adjust and, and figure out, okay, how am I going to communicate here and, and the language barrier obviously was was a challenge, but she she was surrounded by all of her assistants. She had you know a bunch of teenage girls around her. It's all women, all women, all all women. Um, and she had her security detail. Uh, again, teenage girls are there. That's the force. That's their fighting force. Uh, so, what, what would you say the average age of these girls was? Generally. The, 16 uh 16 to 19 years old okay so on the on the high high side they're seniors in high school we'll call it yes but you can be i was reading you can be as as young as 14 if you get it 
Yeah, I, I think the the youngest the youngest one I I saw out there was was sixteen. But okay, yeah, yeah might even yeah. Okay, so what did they when you first saw these girls? Because they I, I'll call them girls. You know, these are girls. Yeah, they're, they're freshmen, sophomore, juniors in high school, yeah. and seniors. You know, they're high school children. Girls. Yeah. yeah, what did they carry? What did they dress like? What was what did they have on them? What type of weaponry? Things like that. So the. All of them, they they all looked the same. They all had like, all all of them had really really long hair. They all braided their hair and they all carried AK forty sevens. They all were wearing um, BDU type you know, uniforms, um, and they all had. This was this was a really uh, this was unique. This this lets you know their headspace of that these young girls were fighting for their country. And I, I saw every single day I saw them walking. They'd, they'd go past us when they were going on patrol and they all had one bullet on the end of their barrel. Like I remember seeing that they all had a one bullet taped to the end of their barrel. And I remember one day asking one of them, why do you have that? And they said that last bullet was for them. So they, they, carried an extra bullet knowing that if they got captured by ISIS that they were to use that bullet on themselves because of what ISIS would do to them and ISIS every single time they got a hold of any of the YPJ fighters they'd chop their heads off and they take pictures and holding holding their hair you know their their head and holding their ponytails and these these girls knew this they knew going into battle that that was likely to happen to them and they didn't they were they were prepared for that 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 blew my mind to see the composure these these warriors these these girls were prepared to go into battle with scum with with evil like that knowing that that's what that's what happened to their friends they have people they have their friends that 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 get that got treated like that from uh, from ISIS, but yeah, day one briefing these these fighters and just seeing what they had already dealt with. They had been fighting for months before we got there, and they fight trench warfare. Also, you're, you you got to you you have to feel like you're you feel like you're going back in time, like. I, I go to the battlefield to go brief the commander and I'm briefing a commander that's fighting trench warfare. So did you have to have the conversation with her was essentially, how can I help? What do you need? What can we bring to the fight? Yeah. And in a trench warfare game plan, what was her answer? So it, it, for me, I had to understand what, what their tactics look like. I, I needed to talk to her to figure out what, what, can I expect to see from you on the battlefield? I need to understand how you maneuver. I need to understand how your how your comp how your unit is comprised, and what vehicles do you use, and and do you do you, what tactics can I expect to see from you to build in some predictability? So I I know this is I can adjust my tactics to outfit to support whatever you're doing and just understanding that they're fighting trench warfare makes it it makes it to where i have to step back and i have to you you just have to go back to the drawing board because all of our tactics that we use 
we're, we use maneuver warfare, we use speed and surprise and violence of action. And this is a very, very different fight, what they're doing. They're digging in and they're gaining, you know, maybe they move 100 yards in a day, but that they'll only do that with bulldozers. So they, they have bulldozers to help build their berms up. And if they make 100 yards, that's great. They, that, that's, that's phenomenal to them. Um, so yeah, they had, they had bulldozers was the only thing that she wanted. So after talking to her and I give her the full briefing to say, you know, this is, we're here for four months. We're going to support you. This is what we're bringing. This is how we can help you. We can bring things from the sky Mm -hmm. and make people go away that are, that, you know, that if there's an enemy in an area and you can, you can identify it to me. I can bring bombs from the sky and, and deal with that. What was her reaction to that initially? She was very stoic. She's as, a, as I'm briefing her, she's, you know, the interpreters is relaying it real time and she's, she's nodding her head and she's, <laughs> Grandma. And she, she, I, I, at some point I thought she's not listening to anything that I'm saying. I, I don't think she's, she either doesn't care or this is just not, this is not impressing her and the reason i i felt that way was after i got done talking to her she said thank you very much and you know i i'm i'm happy you guys are here but can i have bulldozers that's that's all she said after i told her i gave her a 30 minute presentation (laughs) on every single airplane bomb bullet you name it and i'm telling her this is all the things that i i can bring for you i can I can bring firepower, I can bring medical support, I can bring food, I can bring, you know, communications. I'm, I'm giving, I'm telling her all this capability and I just want bulldozers. Bulldozers. Can I have so bulldozers? they would, just to clarify, they would gain some ground, right? Push the berm up to where the ground currently was, to where the line was, right. like the forward line. Right. So the forward line of troops, each day they would just move that a little bit further forward. Yeah. And then bulldoze the berm, the giant pile of dirt yep. that they would shoot from behind. Correct. Forward. Correct. And she wanted bulldozers. That's it. All right. So did that, did her, I guess, did she warm up to your, she, the options and the capabilities you could bring eventually? She did. Yeah. She, How did that go down? It, she had to see it. Once I showed it to her, once I leveled a building or once I, you know, put put a bomb directly on top of a fighting position or, or, or a pickup truck, a technical that's shooting her, you know, what one of her units up. As soon as I smashed that thing, then her eyes lit up. She understood like, okay, this is great. I don't have to get, I don't have to, I don't have to storm these positions anymore. And, and that's what it took. She needed to see it. How did you, how did you, so what was the, how did that go down? Do you, are you showing her a feed from, you know, a, a UAV or, you know, something overhead? Yeah. yeah. And I, now the, the coordination for the attack itself, basically this, she's never seen this before. Yeah. This she's is got no, new. she's got no idea. She doesn't, she doesn't understand why I need her to communicate with her, her maneuver force and to get their updated location and relay it back to me. She didn't understand like this is, I I don't understand why I need to keep on doing this. 
she found out the, I think the first strike that I did, she could see it. She, she saw the, the building that I blew up. She saw it go away and, and she's communicating with her fighting force that was receiving fire from that building. And I told her, okay, this, this is what we're going to do. Tell me where, have them tell, tell you their location. So every single one of them had a tablet. So she would pick up the tablet and she'd be communicating back and forth. And once she'd identify the building, then I would tell her, okay, tell them to stay in that building and tell them to get on this side of the building because I'm going to blow up the building right next to them. So I had to explain all that to her real time. And the first strike, you know, she's, she's trying to figure out like that. I'm, that I'm not going to blow up her people, but I also need them to be predictable. I need them to listen to her, whatever she's telling them, they have to listen to her or else they're going to die. So communicating all that to her and then finally seeing when that bomb went off and then her people called and said they were okay and they're not taking fire anymore. The light, the uh, light bulb per- okay. ter- now turned on and, and, and right. she's bought in. Yes. Now, now she's bought in. And now she's giving me way more information before it was like pulling teeth. I'm like, you got to update me. You got to update me. Tell me where your, your friendlies are, where, where have they moved? And it took until that moment for her to finally grasp it. And then we started getting into a cadence and she started, she so started, started developing it. a relationship with her. So the tr- you're building the trust tree, right? Right. So right. she's starting to, and your, your interpreter is a big part of this. Yes. So she, how, how old was your interpreter? So we had a male interpreter. Um, our interpreter um, was. So our our interpreter was living in her hip pocket. Like he he was always by her. He had to be. Um, we started building a relationship to where she could understand what what I needed. Uh, I, after a while, I'd, I'd say after like two or three weeks, the interpreter didn't have to be in her hip pocket anymore. She understood what was going on. And I started coordinating with her. I, I taught her how to shoot mortars, like by pointing. I I told her, if you point, you point to those guys over there, that means that you want them to start shooting mortars. So we even got into that. Like we got into a cadence to where I told her, if you do this, I know that you, you need support or your, your, your maneuver force is going to start bounding forward. I know that I'm going to back you up. This is what we'll do. So we, we started building rapport. We started building a communication dialogue that we didn't have to have the interpreter there uh, every time, but yeah, I would bring her over to the vehicle and I'd, I'd have a feed. I'd show her some of the video footage of, you know, where we're about to strike and, I'd have her point to where her friendlies are and we, we, we built a relationship, not just off of, you know, having the interpreter there. Mm-hmm. We, we, uh, we had to get creative. Okay. And what was her kind of demeanor, her, how she carried herself, her bearing? What did she have a kind of a command presence, a command style? And cause I'm trying to picture a 65 year old grandma. Yeah. Who's, commanding a female infantry battalion. She's learning about close air support from Eric. And, you know, her whole world of tactics is 
going upside down because trench warfare is, you know, it's a little old. Yeah. So you're expanding her mind and she's adjusting to that. What, what was her kind of, just how did she carry herself and how did her, like, how did the girls respond? She, she definitely had a command presence without a doubt. I, I saw her interact with other, other battalion commanders. Uh, there was the YPG. She, I, I saw her communicate with the other colonels, uh, however, however you want to. These uh, are the male right, colonels. Yeah. The, the male colonels. And they were scared of her. Like this lady, she had a command presence. She was um, so competent uh, and just a warrior. And I, I felt like she was in command of some of the male leadership. Like they, they, they just obeyed her. She, she, she just commanded that she had that respect and from her fighting force without a doubt, like every single person that was under her, you, you could just tell everybody was inspired by her. They were, it was unquestionable. And, and I've worked for a ton of foreign militaries. I I've had a, a bunch of partner forces, you know, Africans, Afghanis, Iraqis. I've worked for so many different ones, but her competence was, was hands down, like one of the strongest of any commander that I worked for before I was, was, it was such a, such a great experience for me to, to see that, to, to have a woman commander, a grandma that is unquestionably hard as nails was just a, a, a very, very unique experience for me. And that was something that when I was doing a little bit of homework on this, the YPJ, so these women, it is their lifelong commitment to fight. It is, they give up uh, having a family, having a husband. So she had been fighting her whole life. I, yeah, I would, I would have to assume so. Yeah. And just talking to all the different uh, YPJ uh, warriors or, or soldiers, they were fighting for their country. And just to see Syria had fallen, like it was a failed state. The place was in ruins. Mm -hmm. The skies were black because they, they were burning oil when, when we were there, that they're refining oil and they're, they're just, it's crude oil that's bubbling out of the ground. And then they light it on fire and it turns the skies black and all the buildings are destroyed. And ISIS is putting bombs in every single building. And the place is just destroyed. And every single fighter there loves their country so much. They are fighting for their country. And I, and I remember having conversations with them saying, like one of the girls said, this is my home. I'm fighting for that place right there. And I, I had a video feed up and, and I'm scanning that we're actually scanning the, we're scanning Raqqa and it's close to the soccer stadium. And she points to a building. She's like, that's going to be my house right there. After we get done fighting, that's going to be my house. I'm fighting for that land. And then this is a teenage girl that's, that's saying this, that they, they, that was their land that they were fighting ISIL to 
ISIS to get their land back. It was just incredible to see that amount of focus from a teenage girl. She's focused on this property right here. That's where I'm going to live right next to the soccer stadium. Cause we've never, we've never had to experience that. No, no, you can try and imagine it, but trying to imagine what it's like to have somebody try to, you know, take your home from you and kill you and your family vice that actually happening and what that, how that affects your drive and what you're willing to do. And so this is a good opportunity. I wanted to read something real quick. I found this um, on the interwebs and it was something that I thought really, when you described these girls and this grandma and this, these women who are fighting for their home, I was like, Oh, this, this kind of connects the two. So, all right, I'll just read it real quick. And, and it offers some perspective, I think on, the motivation these these girls had. The most terrifying force of death comes from the hands of men who wanted to be left alone. They try so very hard to mind their own business and provide for themselves and those they love. They resist every impulse to fight back, knowing the forced and permanent change of life that will come from it. They know that the moment they fight back, their lives as they have lived them are over. The moment the men who wanted to be left alone are forced to fight back, it is a form of suicide. They are literally killing off who they used to be, which is why, when forced to take up violence, these men and women who wanted to be left alone fight with unholy vengeance against those who murdered their former lives. They fight with raw hate and a drive that cannot be fathomed by those who are merely play-acting at politics and terror. True terror will arrive at these people's door, and they will cry, scream, and beg for mercy. But it will fall upon deaf ears of the men and women who just wanted to be left alone. Hmm. Dude, I saw that, and I was like, holy shit. That... Yeah, and and that is that is what powers them. I, I I do believe that there is something that powers them, and it goes beyond just patriotism. I I saw patriotism in them. That was that was clear, but there was something else that that em, empowered them and 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 made them capable of going up against a fighting force that's they're better equipped. Is, ISIS is better equipped. They they're organized. They are. And they're capable of atrocities. They're capable of so, of just, it's scary what they're capable of. And they were, the YPJ were so focused to, to fight that. There, there's got to be something that's motivating them to do that. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that was powerful. What you, you know, it's read. like, like, you know, you, the metaphor of being backed into the corner. Mm -hmm. You know, the cat's not going to fight you or the whatever, the dog, until it has nowhere else to go. Right. And then you're in for a world of hurt. Right. Uh, and essentially, they have been backed up. They're in a corner. And, dude, I it blows my mind. It's freaking crazy. Yeah. Because I can't even think about it. I'm like, what would I do if somebody tried to take my home and kill my family? Right. You would unleash something that, you you might you might know you might be connected with that piece of you maybe there there isn't a lot of people that that do
do understand that piece right. of them. They do. And, and to see that from su- such a young, such a young person also, such a young soul to see that they are capable, people are capable of that, but it's out of necessity. That's, that's what will come out out of necessity. And, it, and they were, they, they were professional also at the same time. Like it's, you would expect behavior from a 16 year old person. Sure. You I mean, were ex- they, did they kind of take on the form of their CEO? Like you had mentioned, she was stoic. She had a command presence. People respected her. Did her, did these girls have a similar, because when I think of a, you know, you think of a 14, 15, 16 year old high school girl, right? Uh, you know, it's a little bit different. Uh, you know, I, I just picture Instagram and drama, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, like no kidding, um, high school drama, you know? but what would, how do these, how do the girls carry themselves? They, they were a, a professional force. They were very quiet. They, whenever the commander spoke, the commander never raised her voice. Uh, I don't think I ever heard her talk over a, a just a very, very quiet tone everybody just snapped to as soon as she started speaking everybody is just like moving towards her and and getting it done i i never i don't think i've ever seen i've never seen a teenage person act act is as professional as they were acting it was it was because of her presence i do I do believe that her leadership, she brought that out of them. She, she made them a, a disciplined force. Um, yeah, they, not your typical behavior from a, from a teenager. I, I, I was, uh, I was blown away by it. And that's, yeah, exactly. And I guess it's interesting to see when, how people react when they're put in a certain situation and the situation that they were in they had to, I mean, the, the, your survival instincts and all that kick in and you tap into that shadow self mm-hmm. that has to be able to do violent things. Right. For, you know, for you and your family. You know? Yeah. And, and the love that they had for each other too. I remember one of the, one of the missions that they went on, we sent a reconnaissance element. We sent four of them into this village. We knew that it was occupied by ISIS and she sent her reconnaissance element in there. And it was four teenage girls that went into the town and I ended up bombing it before they went in there, smashed up a a bunch of buildings. And one of the buildings they had, uh, they patrolled past there was still an ISIS fighter alive in one of the buildings that had collapsed and he waited for them to patrol past the building. And he ended up shooting both of the girls. He shot one of the girls like four times. And one of the other girls, she got shot in her leg. Um, and that girl recovered her friend. She brought, she brought her friend back to us and we had a medic, uh, back at our location and I remember them, you know, coming back to our position and, and we're doing trauma care on her friend. And 
the girl who who got shot four times, like she didn't make one sound. First of all, that 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 blew my mind. She was holding her pain in. She she wasn't she didn't want to make any noise. And her other friend, the one who got shot in the leg, I remember seeing her. She was she's crying. That's that that was her her sister, her sister in arms. And to see that, like the love that she had for her, you could, you could see that, you could feel that. And yeah, the girl who got shot freaking four times, she had like, I, I think she had a sucking chest wound. We, we put a chest tube in her and you put a chest tube in somebody. I don't care how tough you are. That person's going to be crying. They're going to be making some noise. This girl didn't make one noise. And then we had to transport her back to our higher care, which was an hour away by truck and a bumpy uh, truck ride. And I remember my medic was telling me about, he was stabilizing her. He was treating her the whole time uh, that she was in the back of the pickup truck. And he said, bro, she didn't make one noise the whole time. And she was alive. We saved her. She she survived. But yeah, th- to see the the care that they had for each other, like they they cared for each other just like like we do for and any American, any anybody who falls in combat, like to see that care, to see that love, and from a young person also. It was, it was insane. It was, it was nuts. Dude, so just an absolute badass. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. I freaking stub my toe and I scream. You know, it's like, jeez. Get shot. In a chest tube. <laughs> oh, dude. So did the, talking about these, these girls. Now you've, you know, in your career had a chance to work with some pretty, we'll say, uh, heavy hitting dudes. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're there with a Delta Force team. And you've done some other things with other units, you know, at the highest echelons of what America has to offer. Yeah. So the baddest dudes America can produce. On the planet. Um, What did you, did you notice any similarities or differences between these girls and then, and the guys that you worked with? The professionalism, I think that that's a a similarity and, and a a code. I, I think a code you know, brothers in arms, I, I can recognize that similarity with their, with their force that they were a tight knit group. And I, I, I think they shared that bond with each other. I don't know what their training is. I don't know what they go through in order to, in order to become YPJ. I don't, I'm not sure what that entails, but what I saw from them on the battlefield there, they are they are a disciplined force. They are a trained disciplined force. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I don't know. I, I think that would probably be the, the comparison. To, Were there sim- similarities in, uh, I would say attitude and drive or yeah, just kind of more the mental and willingness you know, to accomplish the, you know, whatever the mission is. Cause I know that's a large part of, uh, you know, of, of the, 
special ops unit is those individuals are willing to uh, endure and do things that a lot of individuals aren't. I would say for for us, for the, the fighting force, the Americans that were out there with us, for us, we're, we're, we were at that point selected three times. So we had to be selected three times to make it to the level that we were at. So you had to go through training three different times mm-hmm. in your career and raise your hand three times saying, Hey, I want to go to this next level. I want to go to this next level. I want to go to this next level. They had to do that three times. So the resolve, the motivation, the, the drive that those individuals had on my team, it's, I think that's what makes them so good at what they do because they've had to put themselves on the line. They've had to open themselves up to uh, critical feedback and, and, and not being the best at something and, and having somebody, you know, tell you that you need to get better at something. They needed to do that three times. That's that's what I had to do three different times in order to make it there. So I would say that our thought process, our, who, who, how we're wired, our pedigree, I think we are 10 times different than, than those individuals that right. we, than our partner force, because they, they had to do it. That was out of survival. Sure. They were there out of survival. They're not, I don't, I don't know what their motivation was, but I can assume that it's out of survival. That's why they're there. That's why they're fighting in that group. That's why they're part of the YPJ. It's because it's either that or it's death yeah, or, or, or not existing. Whereas the, the difference, you know, again, we haven't had that experience luckily, except in the, I believe it was the 1980s fictional documentary of the Russian invasion of America uh, and uh, the, I believe it was Charlie Sheen and Patrick Swayze. Wolverines. Yeah. Uh, non-fictional story. Um, <laughs> or no, no, fictional. Sorry. Fictional, fictional. story. Uh, but so I, I guess it's the, uh, it sounds like there's drive. There's a significant amount of drive um, in the guys that you've worked with. And then also these women and these fighters had a, out of necessity, out of just pure survival, they had that drive as well. Right. Yeah. Right. Freaking, yeah. It showed up on the battlefield the same way, but the motivation, yeah, our motivation is internal. It's it's a calling that we have. It's a call to serve, but then there's something more than that. There's There's a calling to be the best at what you do be an expert in it. And for them, there wasn't, they, they didn't have that drive to be the best at what they did. They had a drive to survive, survive. Yeah. Let you fight for your, your home and your family. Right. So, man, that's just freaking gnarly. The kind of a, a, well, kind of just gears here just a little bit and kind of get into more of the, the tactical side. So the day-to-day operations. So y'all were there for, (laughs) four months what was the battle rhythm what was the flow when you guys you know show up in the morning or, or whatever when, when you're on duty uh, what was just the battle rhythm of that 
we were doing four day missions. So we would, everything was mounted. So we, we would drive out to the front line of troops, wherever the, our 40,000 man army had maneuvered up to. And when I say up to our whole goal, the whole deployment was just to get to Raqqa, just drive to Raqqa. And we were going to meet resistance the whole time and just chipping away, bounding forward, 40,000 man army, a constant presence on the battlefield. We, as the Americans would only go out on the battlefield four days at a time, we'd live on the front lines, we'd fight, you know, we'd, we'd be right there with the front line of troops, helping them maneuver forward. And I think the first, the first mission that we went out on, we did, we did like an 11 day mission and our commander was, he didn't, he didn't realize that that is not sustainable. Uh, it, it broke everybody off and we realized we weren't going to be able to support the 40,000 man army by going out 11 days at a time. So just to, just the sheer support function that we needed for ourselves we, we needed to be able to go refit. Um, so we were doing it in four day segments. So we'd go out for four days. We'd come back for four days. And every time we'd go out, we'd drive out, you know, sometimes it'd take us six hours to get out to the front line. Sometimes it'd take us 19 hours to get out to the front line. Whoa. And we were driving out there and living out there on the front lines, um, in trucks, living out of trucks and, waking up in the morning they they bright and early they get up and they start fighting and they usually stop fighting when the sun goes down um unless isis was attacking um they wouldn't fight at night because they didn't have uh, night vision capability uh so we just did that for four months we'd go out four days go go beat them up a little bit go gain some ground and then go back to the base which was back in the north we'd go refit over at the base um, and living in the desert. That was the desert living desert. <laughs> what did you, did you have a consistent set of aircraft in support? I, I had airplanes overhead 24, 24 seven. There was airplanes overhead. Um, I, they weren't always supporting me. Um, but there was a constant presence. There was there was twenty four hour coverage of fighters and uh, intel intelligence surveillance reconnaissance ISR mm-hmm. aircraft. Constant. How did the how did these girls initially react? Because two part question. Prior to you arriving and and your team, did they have any air to surface capabilities in any way, Zero. or was it just bulldozers? AKs. That's it. Take some dirt, move forward, take a little more dirt. All right. So this is the first experience for these girls. What was their reaction when they got to see Eric is radio and his bros and what they can bring to the fight. And when buildings full of ISIS guys start blowing up and vehicles and everything, how did they react? (laughs) The same way that every single military person reacts when a bomb goes off. um, Everybody just starts cheering like <laughs> so these girls everybody's, are cheering. everybody's yeah. cheering it's as soon as the, something blows up and it wasn't them 
they're jumping up and down. Did screaming. you have A10s at all? Yes. So they they got to see the 30 mic mic? Oh yes. Oh dude. Yeah. They they loved it. Yeah. They loved it. They, they it got to the point to where we actually we supported them so much with so many different so we dropped so much bombs that they started getting spoiled because they just fought they they got in fist fights every single day before we got there and then after a month of us being there they wouldn't move unless there was something screaming overhead they're like hey we don't have to literally <laughs> do trench warfare right. there's another option <laughs> yeah Holy cow, man. So you we spoiled up their world. Yeah, we completely. We spoiled them. Dude, yeah. that is that's awesome. Was there any memorable missions or any any events uh you know with the girls with the grandma that kind of stand out? I would say the first day was pretty memorable for me cuz we had we had been attacked twice. So we got hit with two VBIEDs the first day. The first mission that I went on, we got hit by two suicide um, bombers. So in vehicles, in vehicles, got it. So so one of them was a a pickup. Uh, one of them was a semi truck. It's Jeez. the biggest explosion I've ever seen. So um, real quick, take you know VBIED. You know, obviously we we know what that means. Do talk about that insane tactic they would use. So ISIS would, they, they generally use like a really, really young kid to do it. They tell them they're going to live through it and they would, they give them adrenaline. So we found this, we, we, we found it on several of the fighters. They would give them an adrenaline shot before they would drive into our position. So they would tell these kids, Hey, you're going to survive this thing. Go take this vehicle. It's got a bunch of explosives. We're going to put armor around the outside of it so it's going to protect you they they trick them into doing this and then they tell them go drive this into you know the americans or go drive it into the ypj position so they would use drones to find us so they were using like commercial drones just quadcopters like something you would buy on amazon yeah yeah so they would find us with with these with these quadcopters and then they would navigate the person to drive into our position. So that changed tactics for us. Also, we had to become air aware. You know, we, we always have air superiority anywhere we go, but now with drone usage, that's changing the game. Like you have to be air aware. And now we're starting to, we have different tools now that, that can defeat a lot of that stuff. But we didn't have it during this deployment or the things that they were giving us were, were garbage. They so they find, so they have the, the Amazon drone, whatever yeah. they bought on the just commercial market. Yeah. Navigating this kid. Yeah. And steering them. Yeah. Steering it. And, and it's catastrophic. They, they pulled it off a bunch of times and the YPG and the YPJ were deathly afraid of it, of this tactic. I, they would, they would scatter whenever a vehicle was coming at us. So, so day one, this vehicle is coming at us and our 40,000 man army, they got up and took off running. So they are going behind us and we're, there's only three Americans. It was me and, and two of the other recce guys. 
we're on the front lines. This is day one. I just got some F-16s overhead and I hear a report. I get a report that there's a VBID coming. So as I'm getting this report, I'm seeing the front line picks up and they start running behind me. And as they're running behind me, I can see this VBID is like a thousand yards away from me and it's driving towards us. It's I'm, I'm off the side of the road. I'm probably like two or 300 yards off the side of the road and I'm behind a berm that they, that they dug up and this thing jumps off the road, the semi truck, and it starts driving towards our position. And there's only three Americans trying to hold this line. (laughs) So I run and get the Carl Gustav out of the truck and the two recce guys are, they're starting to shoot at the truck and I'm trying to talk this F 16 onto this, onto this pickup truck. And we're trying to yell to get the fighters to come back. They don't want anything to do with this thing. They've seen all their, they've seen their friends get blown up by these things. So they are not about, they don't want anything to do with this thing. So we end up firing a Carl Gustav at it. Um, and that gets the fighting force to come back because they know, okay, we're here. We're going to help out. So they finally come back online. They start shooting at it. They end up, the driver ends up jumping out of the truck and, and taking off. So we stopped the VBID there. Um, and then it ended up blowing up and it's the, the biggest explosion I've ever seen. This was a semi truck. It's a semi truck. And it, I remember the engine block went flying like 300 yards. Jeez. This thing was massive. Uh, so that was day one. And that was the first VBID that hit us. Another VBID hit us two or three hours later. And this one got within 800 meters uh, into our location. So this is. That Real was, quick. That was What's day a one. Carl Gustav? Uh, it's a 57 millimeter recoilless rifle. Okay. Got it. It's like a shoulder fired bazooka. Yeah. Um, it, so there's another one that afternoon, that another ap- V bid, another V bid this, this time it was a V, um, just a sedan. And <laughs> that one we hit with a, a javelin missile. Um, but he, that was memorable for me because that was the only time I felt like I couldn't save the day. I've been in several engagements where I saved the day. Like not me, but the airplanes that are supporting me. I, I turn the tide of battle because we, you know, we're getting over, we're getting overran and people are getting shot and people are getting hurt. And then I can bring cast to bear on, on a target. And I could not get, the airplane on, I could not get them to locate the VBIT. It's a fast short enough. timeline. Very short. It's timeline. very short, and I learned a valuable lesson that day. And I had to change my tactics because of this, um, because I only had a minute and a half from the time that I saw the VBID till the time it was on top of us was it was like a minute and forty five seconds, and the only airplane that I had overhead was a was a drone. It was a predator and he had one missile and he, he couldn't find it. And, and I'm telling him, 
you know, look on this MSR and it, the vehicle's moving westbound and it's moving 50 miles an hour and it's a kilometer away from us. And I'm talking to him and he's, he just can't find this thing. So how did that, how did you adjust your tactics? So what I ended up doing was creating a, for my, for future missions, I created a geofence. So I said, anything that is within a mile, a mile and a half of our location, I gave a pre-planned nine line, uh, we called it nine line Zulu. So I had all the targeting data already populated. It was already out there. And all that needed to be done was I needed to pick a weapon and I needed to give clearance. So I, I had it pre 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 designated with the pilots to say, if I pass nine line Zulu, then I need the fastest bomb off your, off of your wings. And you might even drop it in. It might be on top of our location by the time, you know, the weapon, the, the, the bomb, the bomb fall time and how fast that vehicle's moving, it might impact our position, but that's just that that's the name of the game. That's right. what, that's what we're dealing with now. So a pre-planned nine line and creating a geofence around our location to say within this distance, you're going to, you're going to have to drop this thing as fast as possible. And MSRs were obviously the areas of focus for them. So any high speed Avenue of approach into our position a mile and a half distance you were going to drop something very fast and it might be a strafe also so you even so just to break this down you had along you know this msr or the avenues of approach set up geographic locations where you would get grid lat long elevation everything and and label it nine line alpha bravo charlie delta whatever so when the pilot gets it so it's all bomb on coordinate unless potentially they you know find the target and then you could adjust it to bomb on target it might not even be the actual target itself but so did you have it set up where if a vbid is coming you might have a nine line that has an impact point in front of the vehicle right something like to that effect either a yeah a, a predominant feature in the road either a, a a t in the road i would set up there's different different points that i put target reference points that i would designate knowing that if i still put something there i was probably going to crater the road and generally speaking the the vbids couldn't go off road because they were so weighed down with with armor so i knew if i can at least slow it down if i could put a crater in the road i might be able to stop it it'll it, it'll get stuck in the road or it's going to slow it down yeah or it's gonna get the pilot dash two will be able to roll in you and, contact and, leads hits yeah and then hey see that semi right that's in the in the ditch and i and i leaned heavily on guns also for this tactic because i knew it was the fastest thing for them but just get guns down if you get guns down i'm good with that you're you're probably going to do you're going to blow out a tire hopefully or you, you'll you'll be able to achieve what we want you to achieve and then I don't have to worry also about a bomb impacting and a bid going off right at, right, right at my feet. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a, it was a really, really, it was a really good learning experience for me also. And I, I sent it out to the rest of the guys also because they were, they were going to have to deal with it as well. This is a new emerging uh, threat that we had to deal with. 
and I had no time to deal with it like right there on the spot. Yeah, to go and, through a full nine line. And, and it sucked, man. It, I felt really, really bad about it because I've always been able to to solve the solve that problem. And I remember that another noteworthy part of that something that I learned was seeing somebody go through combat for the first time. I remember we had uh, a special forces guy with us. He was attached to our team. He was a white side SF guy. We just, we needed an extra body for a gunner. And he was sitting on the 50 cal when this V bit popped up. And I remember like everybody shooting. We all are shooting at this thing. We got, we're trying to save our lives. And I remember looking at him and the 50 cal had slap rounds just for VBIDs. Slap rounds are like their armor piercing 50 cal uh, bullets. Um, but we, we had one can of that. They're, they're really hard to get. Um, excuse me. And he that that's the tactic that's that was our tactic if a v-bid popped up grab the slap throw it in the 50 cal and start shooting at this thing and i remember looking at him and he was frozen he's just sitting behind the gun and he's not shooting and he's just like he's staring at this thing barreling down on us and i yelled i yelled his name i was like hey you need to fucking shoot <laughs> shoot yeah dude but uh, but i I saw him go through, he'd never, he'd never been in, in combat before. So I, I witnessed somebody like learning, learning that experiencing war for the first time. And, you know, he, he felt really bad about it after, you know, we dealt with that threat. And I said, Hey man, this is, this is the real deal. Like this is, you're in the shit now. Um, but that was a really uh, unique experience because I remember when I went through it also, and sure. I and I've seen other people go through it also, and it's really funny. Now I think it's funny when people go through it. And I'm like, hey man, we've been doing this shit for years. This is war. This is this is real. Yeah, and you got a you got a sweet gun, and we need it. Yeah, and some cool bullets. Yeah, some good a box of rounds, armor piercing, fifty cal. That's legit. But that was day one. Uh, day one on the battlefield in Syria. And it was, um, it was going to be sporty because like I said, ISIS, they are trained, they are equipped, they do communicate, they, they know how to use their surroundings. Um, they were a strong adversary. Mm -hmm. That is a, uh, going back to the, you know, your pre-planned nine lines real quick. So timeline wise from like, if they launched a V-bid towards your position how early what was your timeline from initial hey i've got eyes on this target to when it would actually potentially impact your lines generally speaking it was two minutes because they they go about each of them they don't go very fast because they're they're always up armored they go about 50 miles an hour so from when you could see it with your naked eye, you've got about two minutes that you get that, that is you're going to have to deal with this. Very short amount of time. Yes. To yes. get a bomb off an aircraft. Even yes. the best aircraft, the closest one with the best pilot. Yep. Two minutes is short. Yeah. Wow. That's... And then we that the altitude of the airplanes and, and for the munition that we had, we had like a 45-second 
uh, fall time. So uh, bomb fall time. So add that in you also. You have a minute. A yeah, minute, but a minute plus or, few, plus or minutes a few seconds. That, as soon as that missile comes off the rails, Dude. it's going to take almost a minute for that thing to hit the like, ground. That is just, man, that is a pressure scenario. That's a pressure scenario. A semi-truck of explosives. Man. <laughs> I'm just like doing the math in my head. You know, we would we, we had our, our goal in the aircraft when it was from receiving the nine line from the JTAC to employment. Depend, if you went through a full nine line process, you know, you're, there's not a VBID, you right. know, 60 seconds away from your position. But, hey, we've got a target of, you know, this type and go through the full nine line. And a few minutes, five to six minutes was a good time. That's good. So yeah. It was a good pace. Yeah. Um, some of them were a little bit more expedited when the JTAC essentially, once we were eyes on the target, you know, it was just give me your bomb now, bro, as yep. soon as possible. Yep. And that was a, you adjusted the, you, you know, the cadence and the normal, right? Checks and balances. Yeah. Five or six know. minutes is that's, that's a reasonable time. Totally. Yeah. Uh, and 60 seconds, one minute, one. Yeah. Two minutes is the maximum amount of time. And then to have like a, a drone also, mm-hmm. a drone is not, res- they're not very responsive. They don't turn fast. And this guy's flying back in Las Vegas. He doesn't give a shit. There's, it, it was a challenging situation Dude, and it, and it, requ- rate up. and it required a change in tactics. Also, it required people to, to start building in new, new techniques and, you you're gonna have to do something uncomfortable also you're gonna have to probably launch something with you're gonna probably be flying at friendlies like there's a bunch of things that you're gonna have to do that are not good they're they're not good techniques and so did you have a blanket um like release authority given to the aircraft so if you had a let's f-16s on station and you get up and you're, let's go weasel. Because weasel were the vipers. Yeah. Uh, last, yeah. Last hazard, uh, I can't remember his point. But so weasel's on station. You're like, hey, weasel one, one, nine line delta. Is it weasel nine, one, one, nine, nine delta cleared hot? Like right now, bro? Or how did, did you adjust your comms to get as much information to him as quickly as possible? Would that include, hey, you're cleared hot? Or did you still have to get a, hey, in heading? Or was your approval in the nine line itself already? It was. So the I would brief the pilot. I would tell them, expect, execute, nine line, Zulu, call in for clearance. Got it. So they would still, in heading, right. cleared hot. Right. Got it. And I, I wanted to make sure that I still, I still had to have that clearance authority with them. But I would give blanket clearance for our helicopters. So our helicopters were different because I had built a relationship with with our helicopters, uh, specifically the 160th guys, to where I told them they knew when we were getting shot at, they knew where the threat was because they could see me shooting or they could see us shooting. So I had built a relationship with them to say, if you see me shooting and I'm not giving you a fire mission, go ahead and shoot. Like, <laughs> Just do it. Yeah, just do <laughs> and it. They, and they were comfortable. I We were all comfortable with that. And was the orientation of the, the forward line of troops, so the friendly position and the enemy position, was it, for the Hilo guys specifically, uh, obvious or was it? It wasn't. It wasn't. Okay, it so wasn't. they still had to, this wasn't just 
blue team, red team on yeah. opposite sides of the field. It was, there's a lot of dynamics there. There was a ton and there was a ton of maneuvering and there was so much maneuvering and the friendlies didn't even know all the maneuvering that was happening. That, that, that was the really challenging part was I really tried not to blow them up. Like I didn't want to blow them up, but they tried so hard to blow themselves up. <laughs> they try, oh, they just, try, am, they're amped up. They're moving forward. Yeah. They yeah. would say, they would always tell me they'd run over to me and they, they say dash dash. That's what they, they called ISIS. Um, and they would point to like on a map and they would say dash dash to get me to blow them up. And I remember I got to the point where I would, I'd have to triple check them. I'd ask them three different times. Are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? And I'd send an airplane over there and then I'd get a feed and I'd show them, I'd have them look at, at the, at the video feed. And I'm like, are you sure this isn't YPJ? Are you sure? Mm -hmm. And they'd be like, yeah, that's dash. It's dash. And I, I probably, it happened every single day, at least once a day that I would avoid blowing up a, a friendly position because they, they just didn't know that their, their front line moved. They're moving. And then the communication and right. all that. Right. A lot of fog, tons of fog, tons of fog. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the relationship that kind of switching gears here, the relationship, I guess how it developed between because you were there for four months doing mm -hmm. some work and how it started like what the relationship was like at the beginning with with the fighters with the girls and, and grandma mm -hmm. um and then how it kind of evolved over those four months so we only i was only aligned with the, with commander new gene the women's unit i was only aligned with them for a month the first month and then i had all male commanders I had either an Arab force or a Kurdish force that I was fighting with the rest of the time as, as I'd moved uh, to different battle spaces. The relationship was strained. It started getting strained because there was this appetite to pull out of Syria that we didn't even want any, we didn't want any presence in Syria. We wanted to pull all of our forces out of there. Our our partner force found out about that. So this was the U.S. government position at the Correct. time was we were going to get out of Syria. Correct. And then how? Did, okay, so continue. They found out. They found out, and we started retrograding. We actually started retrograding at, I would say, three months, three months into the deployment. We pulled back. We went back to the base to to refit, and then we started sending stuff home. We started sending equipment home. We were going to leave. We were going to leave them right as we were surrounding, as we were getting, as we were surrounding Raqqa, we were going to leave and they were going to be left to fight ISIS to finish the mission. And I don't know all the workings that were going on. There was a bunch of policy shit going on that was, that, that was, setting setting us up to to get out of there and there was there was other actors there too there was the russians were there at the same time and they were fucking with us too um the chinese were there 
there was something that the administration wanted wanted us out of there. And when our partner force found out about it, they kind of looked at us, you know, we're, we represent America. And they're like, what the fuck? Are you guys seriously going to leave us to deal with this, this problem? And we kind of had to sit there and like, say, I'm sorry. We'll, we'll, we'll keep on supporting you as long as we can, but <laughs> we got to go. We'll see ya. You guys got it from here. Um, it, it definitely strained the relationship and I think it, it took, it, it took away the trust and the rapport that we had built with them up until that point. Like we, we, we got, we earned, we earned their trust. We earned their respect because we were doing, we were getting rid of the people that took their state over. And then for us to just turn our backs and say, all right, we're, we're out of here. Um, it, it really, really put us in a tough situation where we thought that we were going to be in danger. We thought we might have to fight these people to get out of here. No kidding. Yeah. We, <clears throat> we had to come up with a, a plan. We, we had a contingency plan. If we, if we started inside fighting, um, we we developed a, a plan for um for the base t- to get overran and and what all of us would have to do it got it got that strained that's a deterioration in a relationship you could <laughs> yeah. say yeah man and then the actual goodbye itself and talk about just when you were you you know the grandma and the and the girls that you fall with um you know, because you were they were the you were the first month with right. them, and then you transitioned to work with the the YPG, right? So the the male counterparts. When you had to say, "Hey, Grandma, I'm going down the street to support," you know, the other guys. Uh, how did the girls and how did Grandma react? I I think they recognized they they recognized that we had built a a really good relationship up until that point, and that there, there was some there was a bond there. We we shared a bond. But they also realize that we're going home and this is their home. They're going to have to, this is life for them. So uh, I, I think it was, it was generally like a, a peaceful goodbye, but it was also like we understood what we were leaving them with, that they were, that they were in for the long fight. There was still way more work to be done and we weren't going to be part of it. There's we're going to high five with the next team that comes in here and they're going to take over. And, um, was it difficult for you guys to, I mean, having seen your, what they, what these, what the Syrians, um, YPJ, YPG, what they bring to the table and knowing the enemy, uh, ISIS and what they had, that has to be even for the hardest dudes on the planet. It's gotta be a little bit challenging. It was sad. I, that's the first time that I, I could really look at it from from their point of view, that they're fighting for their land, they're fighting for their. It's in their backyard, and their country is is just gone. They, there is nothing that resembles anything that they call home. It it was tough seeing that, and then especially seeing it from the females, like I to to see that from a group of people that I just consider, 
you know, my, what I think about when I think about a teenage girl, like, you know, TikTok videos and going to the mall and, you know, I, that's, that is my, that's what I think that teenage girls should be doing. And, and to see these girls living through that, it was, it was sad and it, it, it offered me a, a whole different perspective on, on youth, the innocence of youth and, and, and how lucky we are that, you know, we won the lotto and we were born here. Very, very true. Yeah. Straight, just random luck. Just, yeah. I mean, literally, <laughs> uh, I was in Germany not too long ago and a buddy of mine, uh, we had a similar conversation. And his wife works at NATO. So this is in January. Mm-hmm. So pre-current events in uh, Ukraine and Russia. We're just talking about, you know, they've, they've been in Germany for a year. They've traveled around, gone to a whole bunch of different countries. Uh, they're both, he's a prior Marine sniper, mm-hmm. turned Air Force logistics officer, and she's a C-17 pilot. So they got a cool mix, different types of experience. And a lot of people that she flew with were, in the evacuation of Kabul, mm-hmm. Afghanistan. And talking to her compatriots, the other pilots, about, you know, those missions. And, you know, they're this the scenario that is so dire that people will climb on an airplane to try and leave a place. And again, we are so blessed and lucky that we don't we can't you can't even fathom that how does that thought process go through your brain? Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, people can't even, you, people can't even come to grips with seeing that. Right. There, you can't even process yeah. that. People, people are looking at that. Like I, that is this real make sense to me, how somebody is doing that. And they're thinking that it's a good idea. It, the fact that people can't even process looking at it, let alone being in that environment and, and having being a 16 year old girl and being in that environment where you don't have a home and you have somebody who's trying to chop your head off, like that's your life. That's what you're, that's what you're living. That, that to me was it, it was so much work to process through that. Like how, how are you? I remember thinking this as I'm communicating with these girls and I'm saying, how can you have any hope how are you processing this life that you're living right now and and have hope for it when this is what's being done to you like you're you're being hunted by the most evil thing ever in existence this is the most evil dark possibility like capability something that a man can do that that is the darkest thing isis is just capable of the worst evil and you got to deal with that. How are you still smiling? Like, how do you, they would still smile. They would, I, they'd be listening to music or, or whatever when they're not, you know, on patrol or whatever. And they're just still happy. And for, for me to be able to work through that, it was, it was very challenging. Did you ever see them complain? Never, never. So that you you had mentioned earlier that it offered you some perspective. Um, 
specifically on what? On, again, how lucky we are on... I don't know. What, what? How did it just adjust your perspective? So I I think it adjusted my perspective from from what pain is like what what challenges what burden is what you know and and then what's important what's worth fighting for that to to watch those young teenage girls go through that it 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 opened up my perspective to say what we experience here is nothing there is there is absolutely no pain at all and i and i still understand that what they're experiencing it's not that it's so wrong it it, that is it's just it shouldn't be experienced by somebody but it'll i i guess it makes it it makes it very challenging for me to think that what we experience here is pain and like, I, I understand what you're saying where it's a, uh, you can have your, the worst day of your life here. You're having a tough day. The, think of the worst, toughest day you've ever had ever in your life here. At least, you know, here is, you know, two 40 year olds bullshitting. Yeah. And you're like, all right, let me go through my life and find the worst day of my life. And it's like roses and freaking rainbows and, you know, ice cream and a vacation and a beach <laughs> and a gorgeous brunette next to me compared to what these young girls, right? What, what their Monday is their Monday through Sunday. You know, it's Sunday here in Phoenix. We're bullshit and going to go have a beer after this actively right now. I don't know what the situation is. I, I, I know there's, it's still, there's a lot of friction still yeah. in Syria, but for those girls, when you were there, Monday is get up, go fight ISIS. Right. Tuesday, get up, go fight ISIS. It changed. Yeah. It changed my perspective on, on my pain, but I try not to keep that as, as a reality. Cause that's not a reality that, is, that is an extreme, but it's still really hard to mm-hmm. get rid of it to say, this isn't pain. What I'm feeling right now, this come on, this is ridiculous. This, you, you're the softest person on the planet if, if you think that this is pain. So it's it's hard for me. I go back and forth to where I'm like, stop it. This is nothing. This is a joke compared right. to how hard it can be. So I, I think it, it changed. There's a good and a bad to it, I think. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, perspective, man. That's a great word for that. Yeah. So we're getting in the, we'll, we'll start to kind of finish her up here. Yeah. So we had kind of just talked about what I call the psychology of appreciation or how it can change and, uh, you know, perspective, seeing things from different angles can open your eyes in a lot of different ways. Was there any, cause this was 2016, 17, 17, 17. Yeah. Uh, when did you get out? 20, 20. So yeah. you still had three more years left active duty. Yeah. Was there uh, anything you took away from your experience there with the YPJ fighting alongside high school girls and a grandma commander Mm -hmm. from that experience uh, that you put in your toolbox of lessons learned and applied, you know, in, in your last three years uh, as an air force CCT. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Don't, don't 
don't break your own rules. There's, there's things that we live by. You have your code. You have the things that you, that you know keep you alive. And there's times that everything is telling you, don't, don't listen to that rule. Don't do that. Just this one time you can, you don't, you don't have to practice this. Don't do that. Listen to that internal, that internal voice, that code that you live by. There's a reason that you're doing that. There's a reason that you practice this technique or this, or this tool. And it's, and it's reinforced over the years. It's reinforced so many different times. And you have to, that you have to keep, you have to, you have to keep to that code. You have to, you have to obey whatever that tactic is or whatever that, that procedure, that procedure, something. Sure. If it, if that's your code, then you have to stick to it. It doesn't matter what's going on around you. And so was there, not to interrupt, but was there a, was there something that kind of an experience or an event that kind of tempted you to maybe cut a corner to a, maybe not go through a full process? And because you thought maybe I can get away with it this one time when in reality, maybe it wasn't the best idea, but that was inconsistent with what you had done every other time prior. But this one yep. time you're like, maybe I can yep. cut this corner. Yeah. What was that? That was, we never went into houses. Never. Um, the the all the houses in Syria were all uh, booby trapped. They had they put bombs in every single house. ISIS did, uh, especially the ones that they occupied, and they knew that we were chasing them out of there. So we never went in any buildings. We we lived out of trucks, and I slept in a tent. And I remember uh, one of the missions that we were on. It was raining, and it it gets pretty fucking cold in Syria. It, like I would break ice to get out of my bivy. It was, it was cold sure. in the desert and it was raining uh, one night and we had, we were up the whole day. We were fighting the whole day and we were exhausted and it starts raining. We're getting pissed on all of our stuff's getting wet. And there's a building that's like right there. It's big enough. All of us can go in there. And we had sent the, Syrians to go clear it. They would clear buildings before any, any of them would go in there. And we sent them in there three times to clear the building. And I went in there in the first room that I went in, there was this fucking gigantic claymore mine. Like they, they, they made it. It's, they, they make all their, their bombs. It's claymore mine is like, it's got a bunch of ball bearings in it and it's the size of my chest. And I remember the first room that I walk in, I see this Claymore mine and it, it, it's like staring at me and I looked at it and didn't go off, but it like that feeling that, that you get in your chest, like, like, you know, you're going to die. That, that thing is going to blow up in a, in a split second. I can process, I'm going to die. This thing's going to blow up and it's going to fillet me. It's going to evaporate There's nothing left. Yeah, Nothing. And I remember that feeling and like, God, I, I, I said, I'd never go in a building 
Never. There's no reason for me to go in a building. Why? Because I'm cold. Who gives a shit? It's keeping me alive. Like that, that tactic, I was freezing or I was dirty all the time. The whole time I was there in Syria, I was freezing cold, but I was alive. And you don't break those rules. Like there's things that you do that it doesn't matter if it's pissing outside. It doesn't matter that you're cold. There's a reason that you do those things. Don't break that. And I think that translates for other things throughout my life as well, that I know deep down inside, this is in my code to, to do this or to not do this behavior. And it doesn't matter what's going on around you. It doesn't, you can't, you can't disobey that. Dude, that is freaking Claymore. (laughs) Holy shit. It was the size of my chest. It was, dude, you would have been, you would have been complete zero, like pieces of Eric everywhere. Gone. Just nothing. And it killed, it, it killed one guy while I was there. It killed our EOD guy. He went into, uh, he went into a building, but they were doing, that was their mission. They were like clearing buildings or they were trying to collect SSE and he broke, he broke one of his rules. Um, and he picked up a rug in this room and it, the, the room was, I don't, I don't know how much explosives were in there, but it fucking destroyed him. It ripped every body part off of him. Um, and he knew like the dude knew, but you just get lax a days ago or, you know, you're just fed up. You're tired that day. That takes a significant amount of discipline. It does. I mean, you're, as you're painting the scenario, it's raining outside. It's freezing. You're breaking ice to get out of your tent and there's a building right there. Some shelter. Uh, dude, that is, that is a hell of a takeaway. And kind of just to add to that is similar. uh, I have adopted the practice, learned this back in the day in high school and and playing hockey and stuff where I've made some epic mistakes, horrible life decisions Mm -hmm. that led to nothing but disaster, all self-induced, just a (laughs) shit show, self-induced shit show. But I, after eventually learning a similar lesson, but you know, without a claymore mind staring me in the face uh, was to make, certain decisions in advance where I've already decided that I will never do this again. Mm -hmm. And that was 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. I've already decided that I will do this every day or I'll do this, you know, hit the gym, read a book, all those things. That decision has been made in advance. So when scenario A or B pops up, I I don't have to think about it anymore. Someone offers me this, right? I'm good, man. Thanks. No, I'm going to pass because I decided 15 years ago that if that, if I do that, bad things happen. Right. Or whatever it is. Um, Dude, hell of a freaking, damn, that's a good one. So, all right, ninth inning, we're going to switch into uh, transition. Let's do it. So you'll see in front of you, you'll notice a red Skittle and a purple Skittle. Finally. Uh, <laughs> so before we all start started this podcast, uh, for anybody listening, I have two scenarios I've created for Eric. And associated with each scenario is a Skittle. I don't have pills. I couldn't find a red pill or a blue pill, <laughs> actual pill. So we got Skittles. Behind, uh, Eric's going to have a choice here to take one of two Skittles. 
If he takes the red Skittle, it's like Matrix. You're going to go down the rabbit hole, and I have a scenario for you. And then if you take the purple Skittle, I have another scenario, but it's really boring, and you won't like it. <laughs> so which Skittle do you choose? Red. All right, he goes. He's taking the red Skittle. All right, scenario is, so current events. So this one's a little bit more on the series side. Yeah. Actual current events. Uh, Ukraine and Russia. So you have your red phone here in Phoenix. The red phone rings. It's President Zelensky from Ukraine. And he says, Eric, I need you and I need some help. Here's what you get. You get four aircraft. You and your standard kit. Mm -hmm. So your standard CCT kit. One additional weapon of choice and one additional person and whatever that person and their skill set, whatever they bring to the table. So you are on your own. You are not communicating with uh, anybody. You're essentially two-man team, four aircraft, aircraft of your choice, mm -hmm. anything at all, and you are sent in to save the day. What aircraft do you pick? What one weapon do you bring in addition to your kit? And who do you bring to be your dash to? I would bring a gunship. It'd have to be uh, the new gunship, the uh, the one with the thirty nines with the uh, small diameter bombs. Okay, I'm gonna need a gunship. I'm gonna, I'll need a couple of them. If, okay, so if, two, if, yeah, two gunships, two gunships. Uh, gotta have some A tens. Okay, so. Those are my other two. So you go two gunships, two AC-130 gunships. Two AC-130s. Two yeah. A-10s. Two A-10s. Okay. Who who do you bring? You get one person. I I think I'd have to bring... I think I'd bring a medic with me. I think I, I'd have to bring... Uh, I'm, I'm going capability. I, I'd have to bring a medic with me. Uh, a PJ. Yep. Um, and I, hopefully he's a good spotter too. And I would probably bring a three, three, eight. I, I, I bring a precision rifle out there with me, dude. So, uh, this, this same scenario, obviously I've cheated cause I've, I thought about this like okay. a week ago, you know? Yep. Um, and it was funny cause I, this is a scenario I gave your brother uh -huh. and meet at two o'clock this morning okay. and it opened up the rabbit hole of craziness for another two hours. Yeah. And it was crazy to hear the answers. And it was funny. After I posed a couple questions, they were both like, can I change my answer? I was like, no. <laughs> so question number one, same I gave them. Um, Russia has a respectable air-to-air -air threat. How do you handle that one? Okay, I'll give you, I'll give you a pass. You, get to, you can, if you want, swap out a aircraft. I'd have to bring F F-35s. I'd I'd have to I'd have to get rid of the A tens, and I have to bring in F thirty fives. You can you can in have front uh, of that. Yeah, you it, can have like one, you know, okay, or even a Raptor or whatever. Yeah, something with an air to air capability yes. and that, you know. So, but yeah, you could. Uh, it was funny. The so you go okay. So final answers. Yeah. Uh, so like, would you go with gunship? A gunship, F F thirty fives. Uh, or an F-35 and A-10s. So two A-10s, one gunship, and one F-35. Okay. Yeah. 
dude, you could do some damage. <laughs> so we had, uh, mine was, again, I cheated because I had plenty of time to think about this. Um, a single raptor. Okay. All right. A single strike eagle with, that can carry air-to-air as well. Yep. So it's air-to-air, air-to-ground capability. Yep. Um, a single A-10 and a single B-1. Okay. And my my weapon of choice was a Barrett 50 cal. Yeah. All right. And my my dash two was also a PJ. It was funny. Everybody picked PJ. We're all picked a dude who can patch me up, yep. but can also do some damage himself. Um, and there was it would do we it was a three hour long rabbit hole. Like it was it was fun as hell. And That's a fun one. So um, so you know a good little game to play with with the bros is like you get four aircraft. It's like oh man, and dude, the wheels start turning. A Barrett though, you're not thinking about. That is a heavy motherfucker. True, but I'm thinking about here's thoughts, Susan's thoughts on why the Barrett not like the three three eight or three hundred win mag. It's I don't need anything for personnel. You know, we're, we're I'm not we're not getting in if if we're engaging. Yeah, we're we've we're out of position. Yeah, the Barrett's for a, an engine block yes. or something. Maybe they're maybe Russia decides to be tactical geniuses and park a four mile long convoy and you're you could defeat armor with that yeah yeah i, I put okay. on an engine block or something yeah and and maybe the pj he's got a 338 or a three win mag something yep. like that and then once that column is stopped or you know whatever 50 cal can do a lot of stuff and then it's hey you're four mile long freaking convoy stop airplanes do work yeah just hey type three go get them I, I just thought about the 50 cal carrying it around oh, dude, and no it way. made my arms hurt just <laughs> thinking about it <laughs> oh dude well man i think uh that that's a, that's a good little tactical discussion to, to finish it up on man yeah um that was fun dude always this is a blast man yeah. great conversation seriously yeah. uh I, I like this one took on some evolution of its own and i, I appreciate the you talking about you know don't break your habits don't try to cut corners, mm-hmm. things like that. And then rolling with the, uh, gosh, the YPJ, man. So dude, it was fun talking. Yeah. And, this and, is good stuff, dude. Always, I, every time. And it, it forces me to think about it in a different perspective thing also. And I do appreciate that as going back to some of those memories and, and digging out some of the more substantial lessons learned and not just, you know, repeating the same the, the same stories over again, there's a, a level of de- detail that you go into. I think your conversations, the questions that you ask, uh, it, it, it makes it richer. Dude, I appreciate it, man. So real quick, um, if anybody wanted to, you know, get a hold of you uh, about shields and stripes, anything that's going on in, in Eric world, we're check it out. Yeah. Shields and stripes, www.shieldsandstripes.org. Uh, check it out. Uh, our foundation, our program, we're hosting another one in August uh, this year. And we're treating eight veterans and first responders. Yeah, check it out. So addition to that, Instagram, uh, your, your social media sources, you can look up Shields and Stripes, learn about what they're doing, the website as well. Uh, definitely a really cool organization doing some good stuff. Man. Yeah. So, dude, always a pleasure. Anything else? Save rounds, no. finals? No. Okay. Thank All you. Right. Dude, again, Susan and Eric. From Phoenix, we're out of here. See you, Mike. Folks.